The incarnation of the Lord Christ is the central point in the history of all of mankind. The finalized declaration of its truth was finally set forth as the accepted dogma of Christianity and became the touchstone of Christendom. Today's sermon traces the incredible reality of the incarnation and how it became the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Our old covenant reading coming from Isaiah in chapter 9. Isaiah in chapter 9, I'll be reading verse 2 and then 6 and 7. Verse 2 and then to 6 and 7. By inspiration of God, the prophet Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah himself, says this, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Luke writing to us in the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1 through verse 23, the first half of verse 23 as Luke records for us the events at the council at Jerusalem. By the same spirit that moved Isaiah to prophesy, so does Luke write. By inspiration of God, he says this, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas heard no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phinis and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying, that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name, and to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. 
After this, I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is, that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then pleased that the apostles and elders with the whole church who send chosen men of their own country to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas surnamed Barsabas and Silas, chief men among the brethren, and they wrote letters by them after this manner. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Whosoever hath ears to hear what the Spirit says, hearken unto the word of the Lord. Now whenever there arose a controversy concerning doctrine among the people of God, whether it was about circumcision or this thing or that thing, the apostles and the elders would gather together these men of faith, these men of learning, and these men who would understand the doctrines that was presented in the Old Testament. In order to discuss the situation, they would come together and put to rest any confusion concerning the truth of the gospel. And such was the situation here in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. There was a disputation. There was a problem. Is this true? Is that true? What is right? What is wrong? And they would come together to discuss these issues. And the issue then was that certain men of the Pharisees were teaching that only through the ceremonial observance of circumcision could salvation be obtained. In other words, it was, again, a works mentality. If you did this, then you could be saved. Or if you did that, then you could be saved. And in this case, it was circumcision. Therefore, Paul, Barnabas, James, and Peter, and some of the others, they were determined to discuss these things by fleshing out the truth of Scripture, by using the Scripture, so that there would no longer be any confusion on the matter. And so after coming to terms with the truth of God, they put their findings in a written format so that they could be read and understood clearly what was decided by the apostles and some of the elders. They would write letters, notice. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. They would write letters. They would write this and they would write about that. And they would send the letters out and they would then determine what was true as opposed to what was heretical. Now, while their findings concerning circumcision and how it related to salvation were not inspired, some of these letters that some of the elders wrote, like the letter of Barnabas, the letter of this one or that one, not the scriptures, of course, but some of the other letters, they were not inspired. But yet their counsel, their conclusions did come directly from the inspired word of God. And these letters that were not then canonized were called confessional statements. These were actually confessional statements, or put another way, creedal dogmas, which were used to clearly and precisely explain certain controversies and their biblical determinations. Salvation is one doctrine. It is a doctrine or a, a theological issue. And that was what these disciples and apostles were discussing. What is the basis of salvation? What is this theological issue really all about? 
the apostles' letters concerning that specific theological issue became Christian dogma. And we use that word dogma in this way. These were the confessional letters. This is what they would believe. To put it another way, the apostolic findings was a dogmatic statement, a creed, a confession, a statement on what was true as opposed to what was untrue. In the same manner, the incarnation is one of these theological, doctrinal, or dogmatic statements. It is understood and determined to be true by the reading and the study of God's word. So whenever we talk about the incarnation, Christ being born of the virgin, it is a theological truth. According to scripture, the doctrine of the incarnation posits this, that the second person of the triune God became flesh. And this doctrine, the doctrine of the incarnation, was what was called the accepted Christian dogma. Notice what Paul says. In the inspired letter of St. Paul to the church at Philippi, he says this, Let this mind be in you. This is what, in other words, this is what we believe, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Notice he's equal with God. This is a doctrinal statement but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, the incarnation, and being found in fashion as a man, the incarnation, he humbled himself, taking upon the flesh of man and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So in that statement, we have basically the entire truth of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So according to these the apostle here, the, according to Paul, Jesus is equal with God, making him God, and at the same time, being made in the likeness of man. Notice he doesn't say like man. He was very much unlike man. But he was made in the likeness of man. This is simply one of the ways in which the theology of the Incarnation is explained in Scripture. It's expressed in this way. Jesus is 100% God. We have to be careful not to say that he is God. He's not part God. He's not 50% God and 50% man. He's all God. At the same time, he is 100% man without any intermingling. And these are theological statements that became foundational doctrines of the Christian religion. So consider first, Jesus is 100% God. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, notice how God the Father calls Jesus the Son God. So you have God calling Jesus God. Hebrews 1.8 But unto the Son he, God, saith, Thy throne, O God is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, says this in Colossians 1.15 and following, Who, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created, making him the creator, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, or principalities, or powers, all things were created by him and for him, making him God. Jesus says this in John 10.30, I and my Father are one. Echad in the Hebrew, it would be unified, one. In John 1, John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice, and the Word was God. It was with God and was God. 
The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, making Him the Creator. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And then, of course, you know in verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Paul writing to the church of Colossae again in verse 19 of chapter 1, For it pleased the Father that in Him, in Christ, should all the fullness dwell. So Jesus is 100% God. Make no mistake about it. That baby in the manger is the creator of the universe. Second point, Jesus is 100% man. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul writes to, to Timothy, he says this, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God in the flesh. Luke writes this to us in Luke 1.35. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Making him man shall be born. Only a man is born. So we see that he is born. Matthew 1.18 Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. He was birthed. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, making him man, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So the incarnation of the Son of God is one of the central points of the whole of Scripture along with the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost. And so in order to explain clearly and more fully the theological thrust of who Jesus is, creeds and councils were written throughout history. Beginning here at the Council of Jerusalem. These are considered what is known as the dogmas of the church or the dogmas of Christendom. Herman Bavnik says this in his comments on his work on Reformed Dogmatics. He says, The doctrine of Christ is certainly the central point of the whole system of dogmatics. All other dogmas either prepare for it or are inferred from it. In it, as the heart of dogmatics pulses the whole of the religious ethical life of Christianity. It is the mystery of godliness. From this ministry, all Christology has to proceed. So it's so important for us to recognize that the incarnation begins the entire redemption process of mankind and the redemption of the world itself. It's not just about the lights on the Christmas tree. It's not just about the presents under the tree or about festivities or celebrations. It's more than that. It's deeper than that. It has a theological thrust which has man's well-being or their destruction in view. And this is the point Paul was making when he declared to Timothy, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Babnik continues, he says, If, however, Christ is the incarnate word, then the incarnation is the central fact of the entire history of the world. Then, too, it must have been prepared before the ages and have its effects throughout eternity. Notice the entire history of the world. Without the incarnation, the world would be doomed. 
According to Bavnik, the incarnation is not only one of the central points of man's salvation, it is the central point of the world. In other words, it's the central focus of the entire global order. Therefore, it is essential that the doctrine of Christ's incarnation is clearly spelled out in creeds and confessions. The incarnation gives meaning to the world. You ever think about it that way? The incarnation gives meaning to the world and all that is contained therein. And therefore, it requires a clear statement concerning it so that there is no misunderstanding as to what the church is to believe. Now, of course, in the modern church, we see Christ put into the manger, ever to be in the manger, never to leave the manger, because you can control a baby, but you cannot control the kingdom of the universe. So he must depart from the manger, ascend into heaven and by sending of the Spirit reigning over all men and nations. So without the reality and manifestation of the incarnate Christ, the world would be doomed. It would be void of meaning. It is then therefore no wondering why in the very beginning of the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, God declares the centrality of the incarnation in metaphorical symbolism. As early as in Genesis chapter 1, where God declares himself as the beginning of all that exists, he is in fact inserting himself into history, the history of mankind. And from eternity, when there was no created world, God creates the world out of nothing and then injects himself into the world as part of the world, as part of the human race. And its sole purpose was to redeem those whom he had chosen, redeem that which he had created from doom and destruction. And this was always God's plan, always God's intention. Even before the world was created, in the counsel of God's mind, he always believed that he would do this thing in a certain period of time in history. It was his intention to have a people for himself. Always God's intention, even before the world was created, even before Adam rebelled. And this is why the initial description of the creation of the world was, was formless and void. I always marveled about that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. Why? Why not on the first day, light? Because he's showing that, that without the light, there would be no meaning. The world would be without form. The world would be void of any meaning. But then he injects light and it was the light that gave meaning to the created order. And it was that light that divided the, the day from the night and the light from the darkness. And so it is only when he contrasts the darkness with the light by injecting himself as light, he is intentionally inserting himself into the created order and into the affairs of men and nations in a very particular way, in a very peculiar way, even to the extent as to become a man in order to give meaning to man and the created order. The incarnation gives meaning to your existence. Borrowing from Genesis in chapter 1, John contrasts light with darkness. In John three nineteen through 21 he says this, And this is the condemnation, that light is common to the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now while the first chapter of Genesis only hints as to the incarnation, Genesis 3 makes God's intention perfectly clear that salvation will come through the seed of the woman, confirming his plan vis-a-vis the incarnation. So whenever he says the seed of the woman, he's speaking of the birth of a person. Note the reference, Genesis 3.15. 
and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. This too John understood clearly when he wrote in John 1.14 and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Dr. R.J. Rushton explains John's declaration. He says this, John sums up the glory of the incarnation in this way. God the word was made flesh. He dwelt among us and his glory, the glory of God the Son was manifest. God the Son became man. The new man is the head of a new creation. Because he is the fullness of grace and truth, there can be no truth apart from the word, nor any grace from any other man, pagan, God, or religion. The word dwelt is literally tabernacled or tented for a lifetime. God the Son was on earth. His stay was temporary, but his incarnation is an eternal reality. John, in telling us that Jesus is the glory, has in mind the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. That presence is now made flesh in Jesus. The words made flesh are literally become flesh. He became flesh. The word did not temporarily inhabit or possess a child. He became one. He is truly man. And he is the new Adam or head of God's new human race. It is in him and into this new humanity that we are born again. Incredible statement. The reality of the coming incarnation was revealed throughout the Old Testament. This is what they were looking for. From Genesis 1 till the end of the Old Testament, this is what they were anticipating. In veiled types and figures, until Isaiah clarifies it in no uncertain terms, therefore, he says, the Lord himself shall give you a sign, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You see, the plan of God was going to be successfully accomplished by the incarnation, because without the incarnation, God's decree could not have been accomplished. He could never have saved anyone. Man would never be redeemed from the condemnation of the law, the bondage of sin, and the curse of the fall. If the situation resulting from the fall remained unresolved, the creation that God originally called good would lose all meaning, since it would have to be destroyed. He could not redeem it if it wasn't for the Incarnation. And so the Incarnation of the Son of God is the central point of Holy Scripture since it is the central point of the history of the world. So the Old Testament is pointing forward to the advent, not to the end of the world when Christ delivers up the kingdom to the Father, but to the Incarnation because it is the central theme of the world's order. Now consider for a moment what it took for the prophets and then the apostles to actually grasp the incarnation's reality, especially those Old Testament saints. For the prophets that were looking forward to the incarnation, those Old Testament saints, Isaiah, Ezekiel, David, Moses, Aaron, for those prophets who were looking forward to the incarnation, they had to ascribe to it a personality whom they didn't know. They were introduced to the hope of the coming Messiah through types and figures, but they could only understand that in types and figures and shadows and symbologies since the manifestation of the reality had not yet been realized. They were trying to to imagine what is this Messiah like? So they really couldn't ascribe to the Messiah a personality. Even though Isaiah describes him in various ways, often very clearly throughout his entire writings, especially in his chapter 53, he really didn't know him historically as a person, and yet they were preaching about him. Commentator 
Schelling explains this. He says, It has to be hard for a person to ascribe to a personality whom he did not know prior to the moment when that person appeared in human form, which to him is a purely historical one. So Schilling adds that there was perhaps a similar difficulty experienced by the apostles who were able to look back at the Old Testament prophecies in light of the personality that they knew of Jesus. He says this, It also must be exceptionally hard for him afterwards to ascribe to such a personality a pre-human Indeed, even a pre-cosmic experience. So they're looking at Jesus. He's a man. He's standing there with, with, with hair and a beard and two arms and two legs and fingers and toes. And they're trying to think, this is who they were prophesying of. So they were trying to wrap their minds around a personality whom they really didn't know. And now they knew, but they weren't sure really how to internalize that, how to understand that. And this is why so many people, could there anything good come out of Nazareth? Is this really the Messiah? Until he had to tell them, I and the Father are one. And yet they still couldn't wrap their mind around it until perhaps they saw him at the Mount of Transfiguration when he showed all of his glory to Peter, James and John. Maybe then they were able to more easily understand and so the theological truths concerning the Incarnation are spelled out in doctrinal declarations throughout the scriptures. But what of man's understanding of this doctrine? You know, it doesn't spell it out. Well, I guess it does in certain ways, but what about a clear declaration? Is he part God? Is he all God? Is he part man? Is he, is he man and then God put divinity in him and then when he was crucified took the divinity out of him? There's nothing that really deals with that. So, so that had to be addressed. So man's understanding of this doctrine had to be addressed in creeds and confessions. So the question is, how should the church then have clearly explained in a concise manner the theology of the Incarnation, or for that matter, any theological doctrine? And the answer is this. He does this through what is called dogmatics, or to put it in other ways, creeds and confessions. This is why we have creeds and confessions. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of the heaven and earth. And this is why creeds and confessions are so important. So what is dogma? And why is it so important? Well, Louis Burkhoff, in his extensive work on systematic theology, explains it this way. He says, The history of dogma is not concerned with theology in general. The word dogma is derived from the Greek, which in the expression means not only it seems to me or it pleases me, but also I have definitely determined something so that it is for me an established fact. He continues, The word dogma became the designation of a firm and especially a public resolution or decree, creeds and confessions. The Jerusalem Assembly, it is true, did not formulate a doctrine but a regulation for the ethical life of the church, yet its decision was occasioned by a doctrinal controversy, a doctrinal bearing, and was not merely a piece of advice, but a positive injunction with ecclesiastical sanctions. A religious dogma is a religious truth based on authority and officially formulated by some ecclesiastical assembly. Dogmas are the fruit of human reflection, the reflection of the church, often occasioned or intensified by theological controversies. 
all truly religious dogmas derive their material contents from Scripture and from Scripture alone. They do not recognize the unwritten word tradition as a source of dogma. So in order to clearly spell out certain doctrines of the church, faithful men using the Scriptures stated in very clear fashion in creeds and confessions what the Bible teaches on certain things. Now, of course, certain dogmas could be erroneous since they are the culmination of theological understanding on a certain doctrine or certain doctrines. They can and often have been in error. Hence, we have heard the phrase given even as a warning, don't be so dogmatic. How do you know that's true? In other words, you you just might be wrong. So don't be so dogmatic unless you can prove it from Scripture. And this is why when contemplating any dogma, creed, confession, or catechism, it must line up perfectly with the Word of God and the doctrines contained therein. The accepted dogmas of the Reformation are the fruit of careful scriptural reflection in order to express to the religious community in a very clear and precise fashion the truths of Scripture so that they could be understood by anyone. Now, when contemplating the historical development of church dogma, notice what Burkhoff says. The task of the history of dogma is to ascribe the historical origin of the dogma of the church and to trace its subsequent changes and developments. Protestant theology has always maintained the position that the dogma of the church, while characterized by a high degree of stability, is yet subject to change and has in the course of history been enriched with new elements, received more careful formulation, and even undergone certain transformation. This is what the Reformers believed as they wrestled with the dogmas of the Roman Church. And that's why the Reformation is... The Reformation is always reforming. We're reformers, but we're always reforming. We're always reading. We're always studying. God is revealing to us more and more and more. Now, we're not going to go against certain dogmas and and confessions that we know are true, but there are certain nuances that we might have to deal with because Scripture is now showing us other things. So the Reformers believed that they had to be open to God's Word, to be corrected, to be educated further. So in order to correct some of the dogmatic ideas and the practices of the Roman church, remember, the Roman church had dogma. Oh, they had so many dogmas. Most of which were wrong. So in order to correct some of the dogmatic ideas of the Roman church, the reformers returned to the original source of truth, the Holy Scripture. That's where we go. That's where we go to argue the Scriptures. In order to prove or disprove the Roman dogmatic conclusions, the reformers went to the Scripture. And despite, that's why they're, that's why they said sola scriptura, only the Scriptures. The Scriptures alone, not the traditions of the Pope, not the traditions of the Church, not the traditions of men. So despite the glorious efforts of the reformers to redirect the church back to God's word for a clear declaration of what was true, they sometimes took for granted that the early church fathers were accurate in their explanation of Scripture. Tertullian and and Origen and others. And some of these church fathers were very far from the truth as we could see today. Notice what Burkhoff says. While many errors were exposed and corrected, the reformers sought support for their views in the early church fathers and did not even hesitate to adopt some of the views that were developed during the Middle Ages. That's where they made the mistake. 
And so many of the reformers drew their conclusions from such men as Tertullian, Origen, Augustine, Amselm, Thomas Aquinas, my goodness, Thomas Aquinas and Aristotelian. How do you take from Aristotle and come up with the truth of Scripture? But they looked at these men as men of, of, of sobriety, men of the faith, and they took, without checking the data, their conclusions as dogma, as truth. So they were not able to bring about certain ideas as accurately as they should have been. What is vitally important here is to understand that all of these church fathers, including the doctrines of the Roman church and the reformers, the doctrine of the incarnation, even though you've got Tertullian and and Origen and Augustine and the Roman church and and all of these people were, were off in certain areas, never were they off in the doctrine of the incarnation. So solid, so clear was the fact that Jesus is God incarnate. They never questioned it. They never questioned it. And we should see this in confessions and and dogmas and creeds that have come out throughout the centuries. Now, of course, having been in the Roman church, they never really spell out clearly enough, and I know from experience, that Jesus is actually God. He's the Son of God, but never so much as saying very clearly, Jesus is God. So never, even even there, even in the Roman church, never has there been any disagreement among Christendom regarding the Incarnation. Every time there was a controversy or an issue of doctrine, the church fathers would convene and pound out the issue. One of the earliest issues facing the church was the deity of Christ and his human nature by incarnation. That was discussed long ago. The argument was not over the incarnation itself, but rather some of the elements and particulars of the incarnation. One of the issues concerning the Incarnation and the fact that Jesus was indeed God was debated and then answered very clearly at the Council of Nicaea in a document called the Nicene Creed. Alistair McGrath gives some historical background. He says this, The Nicene Creed is the longer version of the creed more strictly known as the Niceo-Constantinopolitan Creed, which includes additional material relating to the person of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. In response to the controversies concerning the divinity of Christ, This creed includes strong affirmation of his unity with God, including the expressions God from God and being of one substance with the Father. The development of creeds was an important element in the move toward achieving a doctrinal consensus within the early church. Notice what the creed states. And it's unfortunate that the modern evangelical church today does not regard the creeds highly. They might be there, they don't study them, they very rarely read them, but these were the foundational documents of the church. This is why you believe what you believe. Notice what the creed says. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father, before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. 
That was a creed that they wrote in order to show the common man, this is what we believe, this is what the scriptures teach. The early church had to deal with all kinds of debates and controversies, ranging from the idea that Jesus could be human or that he couldn't be God, or the idea that he was a spirit and and not a human being, or that he was human and not a spirit, uh, or that he was human and not God. They also debated the Trinitarian doctrine. They thought that maybe the Trinitarian doctrine, that there was one in three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, that that was not biblical. They had to deal with that against the Arians. Another dogmatic statement came from the Council of Chalcedon and the Athanasian Creed, both dealing with the humanity of Christ and the dual nature of Christ. You see, at this time when Christ had come and was then dispatched to the Father after Pentecost, the Gnostics were still very powerful, a very powerful influence. And they said he could not be human. This is what John in his first epistle was dealing with. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. We beheld His glory. We touched Him. We handled Him. He is the Word of Truth. He was dealing with this Gnostic heresy that Jesus was just really a spirit, looked like a man, but not really man. But that was not the case. He really was man. So the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD came up with this. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. Truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards to his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards to his manhood. Notice the Athanasius Creed. He says this, Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and made of the substance of His mother, born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching His Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching His manhood. Who, and that is why, just as a point of reference, that is why Jesus also said, the Father is greater than I, because he had manhood. He was also man. It continues. Who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ. They're trying to make it clear because it was so confusing. Another one of the early church fathers, Gregory of uh, Nesensius posited this in defense of the Incarnation. Notice what he says. He says, Do not let people deceive themselves and others by saying that the man of the Lord, which is the title they give to him who is rather our Lord and God, is without a human mind. We do not separate humanity from the divinity. In fact, we assert the dogma of the unity and identity of the person who previously was not just human, but God, the only Son before all ages, who in these last days has assumed human nature also for our salvation. In his flesh, possible. In his deity, impassable. In the body, subject to limitation, yet unlimited in the spirit, at one and the same time, earthly and heavenly, tangible and intangible, comprehensible and incomprehensible, that by one and the same person, a perfect human being and perfect God, the whole humanity, fallen through sin, might be recreated. These are great documents of the faith. And for the Christian church to worship God 
and recognize the incarnation and not to know the depths of this is to remain a child forever. These Christological debates over the Trinity of the Godhead, the deity and humanity of the incarnation of Christ were plenteous during the early church period and had to be settled before the church could grow in faith and unity. And we stand on the shoulders of those men. Bavnik says this, Only the theistic and Trinitarian confession of God's characteristic essence opens the possibility for the fact of the Incarnation. For here God remains who He is and can yet communicate Himself to others. In a word, the Trinity makes possible the existence of a mediator who Himself participates both in the divine and human nature and thus unites God and humans. By the time of the Reformation, the Roman Church had contrived so many doctrines, many of which had no standing in Holy Writ, that many of the truths of God's Word were neither lo- no longer readily available to the common man, or had been so twisted that they no longer accurately f- reflected Scripture, other than the Incarnation and the doctrine of the Trinity. Those two doctrines that have stood the test of time, many doctrines have been compromised by tradition and unbiblical dogmas. God, however, used the Reformation to challenge and then to change many of the presuppositions and dogmas of the Roman Church so that firstly they would conform to the Scriptures and secondly be readily available for the common man to read and understand. This is how we groom our children through the creeds, through the councils, through the catechisms, through the confessions. And this is why we find so many of the most popular creeds and Christian confessions of of our Christendom coming out of the Reformation. And yet, all of them stand on the shoulders of the dogmatic creedal statements of the faithful councils of the past. Declarations such as the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Councils of Dort, even the Council of Orange, which had a lot of errors in it, great pieces of literature. All of these, part of the Reformation's creedal history, drawing from faithful creeds and confessions by men who knew how to labor in word and doctrine. I am thankful that these creeds and confessions were written years and years ago, hundreds of years ago, because if they were to be written today, I don't know what would come out of it. This is why a study, and I repeat myself, a study of the ecumenical creeds and councils and confessions and dogmas of the church are so important. Because not to know the history, not to know the historical underpinnings of Christian theology is not to know Christianity. The declared beliefs of Christendom are the foundation of Western civilization, social order. And without these Western creeds, these Western biblical creeds, the entire Western world would collapse. Liberty would be lost and tyranny would destroy mankind forever. And why is that so? Well, to be more precise, why is the doctrine of God and the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ so critical to Western civilization's liberty and social structure? Why are we honing in on the doctrine of the incarnation? Why is it so important to know that Christ is God and man? Well, because without the incarnation, man, wanting to be God, wanting to be as God, without the incarnation, declaring that only Jesus is God, Man will declare himself God without limitation, without confrontation or argument. You see, if man can prove, as Nestorius tried in AD 431, that Jesus was simply a man, that God simply put divinity in him, then God can put divinity in any man. The President of the United States might think he's God. 
We know the pharaohs thought they were God. We know that the Caesars thought they were God. Most political men who assume power, sometimes they believe that God is speaking through them. Even the Pope believes that he is God or that God has put some divinity into him. And once that happens, man will be free to declare himself as God and to declare his law as the law. But if only Jesus, as these creeds and confessions have determined, only if Jesus can be both God and man by virtue of his divinity and incarnation, then no human being can be both God and man. Only Jesus. And that is why I have on my vehicle a statement that says the state is not God. There is only one God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ who came in flesh. The Council of Ephesus and the Council of Chalcedon made sure of this. And this is why Herod was so insistent upon finding the incarnate Son of God as the seed of the serpent. Herod, claiming himself to be as God, he wanted to destroy the seed of the woman so that he would have no competition. And think about what's happening today. In our modern churches concerning creedal testimony, there really isn't any. When was the last time you had a sermon on a creed? It's boring. Boring. Dry, like eating wood. No one wants to hear that. It's not exciting. It's not Jesus loves you. It's not Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. It's all about truth and how we came to this position in our history. So there's a glaring ignorance of our creedal heritage. And it's often encouraged by the so-called Christian ministers who piously declare, no creed but Christ, sorry, we don't, we don't go after that, we don't have the Westminster, we don't have this or that, and you know, there's no law but love. Which they fail to understand that the law of love came out of the law of God. These are words that will one day seal the doom of the church and bring the human race into extreme bondage since they have no creedal history to assist them in declaring no king but Jesus. And that's why they're trying to destroy history. If they can destroy the history of the church through the ignorance of its people, they win. Hands down, they win. We must bring our nation, we must bring our nation, not only our church, but it is through the church, we must bring our nation back to its creedal roots. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the standards, were given not only for the church to assume responsibility for, but the state as well. We must change the perception of the populace using every means available before we lose our history, our creedal history. Because if we lose our history, we lose our future. May God give us the wisdom and stamina to rekindle a love of historical theology so that we might have the weapons needed to bring our nation back from the brink of destruction by bringing back our creedal roots. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.